Live, online and on your mobile, this, this is DCUFM News. Hi everyone and welcome back to Newswire. I'm Anya O'Boyle and I'm joined today by Kira O'Loughlin. On today's show, USI President Sheena Cahill talks to us about an action plan on gender equality in universities. DCU Students Union Irish Officer Sir Cunique Mila discusses with us that Irish will become a working language in the EU by 2020. Tom Douglas speaks to TD Gino Kenny about the legalisation of medicinal cannabis in Ireland and Dara Brown reports on last week's US midterm elections. Finally, we will have a panel discussion on recent polls conducted for United Ireland. But first, we have our hourly news bulletin. Stolen cars, an air rifle, cash, jewellery and electronic devices have all been seized in a series of raids in Meath and Dublin. Seven searches involving the Criminal Assets Bureau have been carried out this morning in homes in Ashburn, Navan and in offices in Dublin. The CAB investigation centres on an organised crime gang based in County Meath made up of members of one family. Palestinians in Gaza fired scores of up to 370 rockets and mortar bombs into southern Israel. The violence comes a day after an Israeli incursion prompted deadly fighting in Gaza. Three Palestinian gunmen were killed in the air attacks. Seven Palestinian militants were also killed during the incident. Negotiations from the UK and the EU have reportedly reached an agreement that will see no hard border on the island of Ireland, but the Irish government is maintaining that nothing has yet been confirmed. The backstop would come in the form of a temporary UK-wide customs arrangement with specific rules for Northern Ireland. The death toll from a huge blaze in Northern California rose to 42 last night, making it the deadliest wildfire in the state history. Thousands of firefighters spent a fifth day digging battle lines to contain the campfire in the foothills of the Syria Nevada mountains, north of Sacramento, while search teams were on a grim mission to recover the dead. And finally, the official lineup for this year's I'm a Celebrity has been confirmed, with Harry Redknapp, James McAvee and The Vamps, and lots of soap stars entering the jungle. The new series starts this Sunday, November 18th at 9pm. That's all the news for now. Remember, you can keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at DCUFM News. Your next news bulletin is tomorrow at 9 o'clock. It's recently been announced that Irish will become a working language in the European Union by 2020. It's planned that 700 people will be trained in translating EU documents into Irish and 180 of those will be full-time workers with jobs paying over €100,000. Leonie Rieda, one of the presidential candidates, was a leading campaigner for this. The native Irish speaker recently went on language strike, refusing to speak anything but Irish within European Parliament for a number of weeks, with her assistant acting as her translator. The EU aims to have all official documents available in Ireland in Irish by 2020, with work beginning on translations next year. Despite many considering these developments to be good, there are clear drawbacks in relation to the actual number of people who speak Irish on a daily basis and would be interested in reading EU documents translated in Irish. According to a survey conducted by the Central Statistics Office in 2017, the number of people or Gaelgury that speak Irish on a daily basis stands at 6.3% of the population. In total, 39.8% of the population claim to speak Irish, but whether or not this is reflected in daily life and conversations is up for debate. 
Hi Sorka, so could you tell us a little bit about your role as Irish officer of DCU Student Union and what this entails? Yeah, so my job is to make sure that the Irish language is represented and that people know the opportunities that they have with the Irish language um, because we obviously all have very different experiences and different backgrounds but we try to make it as open and inclusive as possible. So that's my job. And usually if there's an issue in an Irish language course or there's some way I can promote the language in within my capacity on the SU, I try to do so. Um, like, we have Gwen Fair today and I have half of the SU taking part, which is really good because a lot of people were very nervous to speak Irish, but this is a way to kind of open things up and, and give people a bit of an opportunity to reconnect with the language. So why do you think that it's important that Irish would be considered a working language in the EU by 2020? I suppose for my own personal opinion would be that the Irish language is the first language of our country. and. As a European country, it's really nice to have our own identity. And by having our own identity, we've actually created thousands of jobs. <laughs> because this becoming a full working language by 2020 will mean there'll be more lawyers hired, there'll be more translators, more interpreters hired, which will give so many opportunities to Irish people and help, hopefully will help rejuvenate the language as well in the country. So do you think it's a good you think it's a good use of resources to hire so many people to translate uh, these EU documents kind of due to the probably small proportion of people that would actually speak Irish on a daily basis? Well I suppose when we look at the census results the amount of Irish speakers has risen pretty much solidly in the last 100 years. So it can only really go up from here which is brilliant. And maybe by having more jobs out there, more people will feel compelled to the language and it'll give them an opportunity to connect on a global level. Um, because in 100 years' time, there'll be 100 less languages in the world. So we want Irish to be one of the languages still kicking strong in 100 years' time. And this is a really good way to do it. And I suppose as well, when people are like, is it a waste of resources? What languages are constitution written and interpreted in? It's written in Irish and interpreted in Irish. Our legal documents need to be translated anyway within Ireland. Why not make it that our European documents should be too? We have constitutional right to do so. So it'll be absolutely wonderful to be able to have access to documents that not only English speakers can read, but the Irish speakers too, because we want to be able to do our daily business through Irish. And this will be a really exciting way to connect us with the European Union, because we do feel a bit disconnected at the moment. <laughs> so do you think that instead of maybe going as far as to translate the EU documents, there's ways that we could do it that would be less less expensive but would engage people more on a daily basis with the Irish language rather than something that I don't really know too many people that might actually read the you know the EU documents do you think there's different ways? Well I suppose there's already there's, there's an MEP that we have on behalf of Ireland she's from the southern region and she does all her business in the European Parliament through Irish yeah. and is it fair to make her read something in a language that she doesn't recognise as hers? Um, for the past few years, we've been able to use Irish as a minor language so we can speak it and we can go about representing ourselves in the European Union with our language, but we didn't have that full recognition. Um, many other European countries have minor languages and they're used and translated and represented. We deserve the same. And it'll be nice to see it happen because it might bring us into the next stage of the Irish language, which is making it a global language and not just a 
look at this 26 county republic yeah. let's make it something that everyone can see on a global level and this is a massive deal because we're not the only language becoming a full working language either but this will really bring us from that minor status into being a recognized language and it'll be a massive step for us which will be incredible because it means that our documents and our whole legal system can match up with that of the European Parliament and the European courts because we couldn't do so previously so it'd be really nice to see that. So do you think that through doing this we can engage people like the Irish um, diaspora in other countries to speak Irish when they're living abroad and to kind of make it more of a popular thing there? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, if you look at the people who are already working um, within the European Parliament and the European Union as translators or as interpreters, they are running their own Irish classes while they're there. So they're pulling the diaspora in. Like we have things like the pop-up whale shops, which are now literally popping up all over yeah. Europe. It wouldn't be happening if we didn't have them, our own Irish people over there working within the European Union. Mm -hmm. And it'll be really good because it might just bring us into a way that you don't just speak Irish if you live in the back of Galway. It'll be, you can speak Irish anywhere mm -hmm. and you can work through this language. And it'll be just a great opportunity. Mm -hmm and especially for DCU students because we have one of the best Irish language programs in the country through Fionter, which is our school, school of Irish. We have translation courses, we have Gaelgogs Cano and Gaelgogs Siroshoracht, and we have masters in um, Gaelga and things like that. So when they go abroad, they're now gonna have more jobs open to them, which will absolutely be incredible for just DCU students alone. We could have so many of us employed that would never have even thought about going abroad and working in the European Union before, but now we have this opportunity to just go and do it, which will be really good. So we're translating these EU documents into Irish. Are there ways that DCU kind of do this on a smaller basis? Like, do we translate our newsletters into Irish for students that might want to kind of engage with that? Yes, I suppose like on a smaller level we have like in our college paper there's Irish language um, articles published every month um, by myself and maybe a couple others like we get Irish language into that paper or you get an email from myself every month um, with an update on all the various things that are going on in the university. Maybe it might be a potential thing to look at in the future of getting maybe a bit of the presidential email put into Irish, maybe getting the welfare email a little bit more put into Irish. It's really valuable as a resource because everyone's first language or the second language of the country. And it means that it's just more accessible and makes it useful because there's stuff that I might put into my email when I email people like, I don't know, like they have an event coming up called Jailbreak in March that you won't see anywhere else. But yeah. by reading that email, it's not just for Irish speakers, but it's for everybody my emails like are bilingual maybe it's something to look at for other forms of um, communication but it's a really nice way to bring someone in is to just have a touch of Gaelga there even just starting your emails off with a carriage that's mm -hmm. just normalizing it and making it more of a natural thing so it doesn't seem so alien and scary yeah <laughs> yeah okay well I think that's it was announced today that the government planned to combat gender equality in higher education by creating women-only professor positions across all universities and technology institutes. 
Minister for Higher Education Mary Mitchell O'Connor said the project would ensure that 40% of Ireland's professor-level positions would be held by women by 2024. Union of Students in Ireland President Sheena Cahill talks to us about her welcoming of this announcement. However, she regrets that there wasn't a single student representative as a member of the Minister's, minister's Task Force. students. Right, well, Mitchell uh, O'Connor um, yesterday uh, brought out uh, a gender equality action plan and effectively what, what, what it identifies is that there, we, we have a serious, serious problem uh, with the progression of female academics uh, in, and across our institutions at the moment and in terms of how this affects students, it's bad because uh, not only students, uh, obviously, are they are they seeing a lack of representation of incredibly uh, brilliant uh, female academics throughout the system, but also that any student who's considering a career in academia probably thinks twice if they're a woman about whether they'll enter the field at all. Because certainly, when you look at uh, STEM subjects, we're seeing a complete glut um, of, of female, um, you know, lecturers and academics. Yeah. And like the reality is, I suppose uh, that you know. You know, while women make up half of university lecturers, in, for instance, they account for just under a quarter of professorships. Okay. And that's a big problem. And do you think, like, this will have a positive effect on students currently studying now who, you know, maybe they haven't thought about wanting to go into academia, but do you think that this bring hopefully will bring awareness um, to this fact? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the one of the... Um, the, the options that Mary Mitchell O'Connor has, has suggested is about this kind of effectively 30 women-only professorships, right? Uh, and so I'm not going to say that students will feel an immediate effect. Um, okay. The reality is, is that the system itself um, requires some immediate and quite radical action. And what this is doing is creating additional professorships um, and much needed indeed, like they're not just created for the fun of it, but, and, um, but basically much needed professorships across a, a range of different subjects is, is the proposal. And like ultimately what, what is hoped, if this is, if this is, if this is implemented properly, is that we will see more women uh, progress uh, above lecturer level and um, into professorship level uh, throughout our universities in particular, as well as the IT, uh, because we do have a big problem. So, you know, on the ground, it may not be the immediate effect of this, but I think over time, uh, this action now will mean, hopefully, that we will have a better system and more female academics progressing through it in the future. Okay, and do you mind just like, explaining to our listeners uh, what the difference is between um, like being a lecturer and then being a professor? Yeah, so you've got a lecturer, you've got an assistant uh, lecturer, you've got lecturer, you've assistant professor, and then you've got professor. And the, the, the big thing here is that and um, we're seeing across the board, but in particular in universities, indeed, like in BCU, actually, uh, there's, there's, it, there feels like there's a stop between from an existing professor to a professor. So basically, there's a hierarchy, and okay. of course, that also affects wages. But the big thing is that if you get a, a professorship, it's a job for life. So most academics, but it, and it is gender, and um, but it is many, many academics, and um, we're seeing here currently in the system. So a lot of academics that might even be your tutors at the moment or, or be lecturers in front of you might only be on 18-month contracts. And okay. you can just imagine that in your 30s or 40s, you're hoping to get a mortgage and this is now your life, your life, 18-month contract uh, is a very, very precarious position to be in. And so when we can't see um, levels of women progressing to professorships where they will be able to remain in kind of solid, steady employment, then it's a 
big problem uh, for women in the system on the whole. And like, do you think like, do, do most students realize kind of the difference between these two roles at the moment? Because even myself, I wouldn't actually kind of know who is in which position. Um, no, I mean, I suppose the everyday interaction um, might not be significant, but most people would recognise a head of department uh, or professors um, who, you know, are clearly taking the lead uh, on particular content yeah. um, in particular courses, uh, whereas your assistant professor or, in, or indeed the lecturers, uh, you might not realise, uh, you know, what their wage packet is or how long they're there, but you certainly would realise the student if, you're, if, you're, if the lecturer that was there um, for the last six months uh, you know, isn't coming to work anymore because their contract has ended. That's where, you know, we're going to see, a, you know, a big problem. And, and look, it, 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 it's part of a, a system-wide issue, not just in relation to, you know, a gender imbalance, but that the funding of higher education uh, is such that at the moment that this kind of precarious work practices, uh, again, not just for women, um, is, is affecting the system on the whole. And we're, we're seeing staff um, at all levels taking on a lot more work. Um, we see uh, postgrad students uh, you know, required to do a lot more tutoring, a lot more correcting of, of exams than they should be doing because they're not spending time, therefore, on their research. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, it, it, they're being used uh, and abused, in my opinion, at the moment. And that's about a lack of system funding in higher education. And while Minister Mitchell O'Connor seems to be particularly in, interested in gender equality, which, of course, we welcome, and, of course, I welcome, uh, as, a, as a former female student myself and someone who's always been, been active on, 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 on collecting gender imbalances uh, in the college, system I would be concerned about what seems like a lack of interest from the Minister on the higher education issue and funding issue on the whole. We're going to have a quick ad break now and afterwards we, we will be speaking to TD Gino Kenny about the legalisation of medicinal cannabis in Ireland and Dara Brown reports on last week's US midterm elections. Uh, first of all Gino can you tell us a little bit about your bill that's in the doll at the moment you've said that it's under effective embargo? Yeah um I put the bill to uh, the doll that was almost like two and a half years ago at this stage. Um, so it's gone through pre-legislative scrutiny um, and that, that kind of process. So a year ago, uh, it was brought back to the floor of the doll and by a majority of TDs, uh, they voted by a majority to let the bill progress to back to the Health Committee. So... That was a year ago, but since then the government basically have stopped the bill progressing. Um, so that's the bill basically is effective has an effective embargo on the on the bill, so it can't move to committee stage unless the the government lift uh, what's called the money message on the bill. So that's where the bill is at at the moment. It's in the kind of limbo. Um, it can only progress if the government kind of lift that embargo. Can you just give us a few details on what's actually in the bill? The main, uh, the main point of the bill was to regulate uh, medical cannabis and to, for cannabis, for medicinal use to be regulated and be prescribed by a doctor. So that's the main focus of the bill, um, to be prescribed by a GP and, uh, you know, for that doctor to prescribe it for, you know, numerous conditions where he or she sees fit where it can be beneficial to that person. So that's the main uh, crux of the bill. Um, there's other parts of the bill for Cannabis Regulation Authority and a Cannabis uh, Research Institute. So they're to be set up 
um, in tandem in with uh, the metal camps being described. So that's the three strands of the bill. Um, but the main strand is that you know cannabis for medicinal use can be regulated, legislated for, and be prescribed. So on the prescription itself, um, there's uh, currently, I think, 12 families that have licences. Um, but for others, like uh, Ava, Barry, for a while, like going to Netherlands every three months just isn't, it's not, not like they're not able to do that to get no. treatment. Um, yeah, 12 licences have been issued in the last, I think, two years. Um, so that's 12 individuals um, now that process of a license system is very very cumbersome and it's case per case and you know most people that are going to their specialists or doctors they're you know the doctor is usually saying that they don't know enough about the subject um there's not enough research so um that pro that process the license system is quite cumbersome and uh, it should be replaced altogether because if you are issued a license, you have to leave the state to to get the medication and bring it back. So it can't be prescribed here. It can't be. You can't. You can't get it in a pharmacy in Ireland. Um, and also, there's a, a reimbursement issue. Uh, it's quite financially um, expensive um, for the individual. Not only just to fly over there, but obviously the medication itself is quite expensive. So that on the, on that basis, that's completely unworkable. That's why we're calling for a legislative change. Uh, so medical cannabis can be rescheduled, prescribed by a doctor, and then um, you know patients can benefit from medical cannabis. After a license is given to an individual, if it were to be prescribed here and to be sold here, um, the government seemed to be having trouble finding a supplier. Yeah, yeah, that's what they've said. They've said that they can't find a supplier. But uh, I just find that not, not credible because they've had two years to um uh, you know they've had gone on this issue and you know after two years they're saying now they can't find a supplier in Europe. So I don't find that credible at all. <clears throat> There's other companies that, you know, that are that produce metal cannabis and can it can be exported to Ireland but there's obviously huge reluctance reluctance um from the HSE and the Department of Health on the prescribing of medical cannabis. And I think at this moment in time, they're happy enough to um, to to off the license system. Uh, but as I said before, that's a very, very cumbersome system. And if if it can be kind of uh, legislated for, it could benefit thousands rather than uh, a handful of individuals. Yeah, I thought you might say that. Um, Minister Michael Creed said after being challenged by, uh, I think it was Fianna Fáil, he said that the government aren't dragging their feet. But if these products are available in Northern Ireland, if they're available in the UK, if they're available in Holland, surely finding a supplier shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as of the 1st of November, uh, Britain changed their policy on the prescribing of medical cannabis. So it can be prescribed, even though it's highly, highly, highly restrictive. Uh, in Britain, but they changed their policy in the course of four months. Uh, this has been going on for the last two years. So um, the idea that this is a supply issue is again, it's not credible. And um, I think there's again, there's a, a huge reluctance, reluctance by HPRA, the HSE, the Department of Health, um, to not legislate for this issue. And finally, you held a meeting on this issue recently. Um, how did that go? I couldn't make it myself. 
Yeah, no, it went very well. It went very, very well. There was obviously five parents from Ireland and Britain there uh, speaking about their own experience. Um, their, five, their, their children themselves have greatly benefited from medical cannabis. Um, they're obviously campaigning for other children and other ind- individuals to gain access uh, to medical cannabis in Britain and Ireland. So it was a very, very good um, meeting. Um, we also had a, a presentation to the TDs and senators to explain what's the latest, uh, you know, uh, on legislation in Britain and Ireland. So, uh, yeah, these are kind of meetings that take, will take place on a continuous basis until there's some clarity and um, about the issue of legislation, because that's what this is all about. The law needs to change. Once the law is, changes, then medical cannabis can be prescribed, um, hopefully to the many people that could benefit. Grace, thank you very much, Gina. No problem, Tom. The U.S. midterm elections began last week, right in the middle of President Donald Trump. The midterm elections are held every two years. At each election, the House of Representatives and a third of the 100-member Senate are elected. These elections are a chance for Americans to pass judgment on President Donald Trump since his election two years ago. 35 out of the 100 seats in the Senate and the 435 seats in the lower House of Representatives were available. The results showed that the Democrats won 47 seats while the Republicans won 51 seats of the Senate. However, the Democrats won 227 seats and the Republican won 198 seats in the lower House of Representatives. The Democrats needed to control both houses in order to take control of the legislative agenda and block Trump's ability to implement his programmes. The Cook Political Report estimated that the Democrats had a definite 182 seats and the Republicans had 140. However, the Republicans were well positioned as they only needed to defend nine seats, whereas the Democrats had to defend 24. Even though the polls have closed, there are three main states that have yet to be declared, Florida, Georgia and Arizona. On Saturday, the Florida Secretary of State called for the first full machine recount in the state's history. The Secretary has also accused election officials in two Democratic-leaning counties of fraud and has requested an investigation. However, the Governor has seen no evidence to support the claims. In Georgia, Democrat Stacey Abrams lost to Republican Brian Kemp. However, she claims that a large number of provisional and absentee ballots have wrongly been rejected. She is refusing to concede the election before all votes are counted. In Arizona, Democrat Kristen Sinema had had taken the lead over Republican Martha McSally even after polls have closed. It is normal for this to happen. However, Trump stated without any evidence that the votes were being counted out of the wilderness. Martha McSally conceded on Monday to Kristen Cinema. The House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi has said that although the Republicans have the Senate, the House win would allow Democrats to restore checks and balances. It was estimated that there were 114 million voters, 31 million more than in 2014. There are also more women than ever before, with 99 women serving in the House of Representatives. We're going to take a short ad break now, but afterwards we'll be having our panel discussion on a united Ireland and Irish becoming a working language in the EU by 2020. And lastly, it's time for our panel discussion. 
Earlier today, a cross-border poll carried out by RTE and the BBC revealed that 62% of people in Northern Ireland believe that a united Ireland will be more likely post-Brexit. Kira, are you surprised by this? I actually am, yeah. Um, so 62% of people in Northern Ireland believe that United Ireland will be more likely post-Brexit. Um, well, no, okay, right. I suppose I am and I am surprised. I'm I'm surprised that the number is so high, but then again, it still doesn't really mean anything, does it? Like, I mean, they just think it will be more likely, not that they think it's going to happen. Is that right? Yeah. Um, like, no one can say for certain right now whether or not a united Ireland will ever happen, but I think it seems to be a definite talking point at the moment, and this is probably the closest we've ever been in recent years to, you know, agreeing upon whether or not we want a united Ireland. Yeah. Like I, even last year, DCU um, voted for um, the reunification of Ireland um, in a student referendum. So, can you remember actually what was the percentage for that? Um, I actually read that earlier. I know it was quite high, it was wasn't it? Over half. Yeah. Anyways, it was. Yeah, like it, it, it did go through. Yeah. I wonder though, like, uh, how, like, obviously in DCU, most of us are from the South. Yeah. So I wonder, like, that would, I'm, I presume that would have a huge, you know, influence yeah. on, on the outcome of that. I wonder if you went to, you know, Queen's University or University up north, you'd probably get, like, oh God, it's so, it's so hard to tell, but you'd definitely get, obviously, a much bigger variety and a yeah. huge difference. Even though we, we think that, but then like this poll shows that 62% of the people in Northern Ireland, you know, they do believe that there'll be a United Ireland. I suppose that might not take into account whether or not they actually want one. Yes, but that's what I was thinking. That's what they think will happen. Yeah. In the end, so. And as well, this poll, though, like I think the question needs to be questioned. That sounds really weird. Yeah. Like... Are they asking people, do you think there will be a United Ireland? Or are they asking people, do you think it will be more likely yeah. post-Brexit? So, I mean, that's... I feel like a lot of people might have seen that and the question's kind of badly laid out. Mm -hmm. It doesn't It doesn't really answer much. Yeah. I mean, if you ask anyone, they'll be like, well, yeah, it's more likely, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it wasn't questioning them, do you think it will happen? But, like, what do you think the public's outcome would be? Like, do you think people actually understand Brexit? Well, I mean, it... People don't understand Brexit. The same poll said that 55% of the people living in Northern Ireland currently, they think they'll be financially worse off after Brexit. So this may be because they think that there'll be, you know, go back to a united Ireland... And it's going to be a new state and there's going to be, you know, it might be a difficult time financially for, you know, um, for Ireland if it, if it were to be united. So it's difficult to see if they think that Brexit will cause them to be financially worse off or yeah. if the implications of an, a united Ireland will be the reason for that. And kind of, kind of on the same topic, I suppose, one of the major issues you know, with Brexit and what does terrify people is that, you know, 
a lot of people think that, you know, if a hard border is implemented, this is what will yeah. make, you know, Ireland be United Ireland because obviously people just don't want that. But I don't think that will happen. I don't think a hard border will happen. No. I mean, today it came in that the um, EU said that there definitely wouldn't be a hard border, but that's not the first time that that has came out and then it's been, it's been like taken away, you yeah. know? And then definitely the Irish government just aren't sure if that's the case. Um, it's, they're probably hoping that it's not going to be the case. Um, I don't think the EU will settle for a hard border. You know, 61% of the people that were surveyed said that the UK shouldn't actually proceed with Brexit if it's going to result in a hard border for Ireland. No one wants it. No one wants to go back to the tro- like the times of the troubles. Exactly, yeah. All this kind of almost like barbaric like way that, you know, you couldn't even travel through one actual island. Exactly. Um, but the thing is... I don't think people realise as well, like, how many people up north actually want to be a part of Ireland? Like, I think living in Dublin, living down south, you know, we've always had this kind of nearly majestic outlook that one day Ireland will be united again and all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, I don't think a lot of people realise that, you know, there's a lot of people in Northern Ireland who don't want to be a part of Ireland. Of course not. They spent so long being a part of Britain and then to suddenly kind of take that away Exactly, like that's what a lot of people identify as, yeah. and we can't, you know, can't just disregard that since exactly. Yeah, exactly, and as well, like, just because you know the majority of Northern Ireland voted to be a part of the EU, mm-hmm. still doesn't mean that they want to be a part of of, of Ireland. Ireland exactly, sorry. Yeah. I, I don't know. I suppose in the south we are very kind of detached from what's going on in Northern Ireland. Definitely. Um, like, I don't know what people want up, up there. Um, so it's just, it's kind of hard for us to make a judgment on that. Yeah. But um, there are still, there are large communities who want to, you know, work for United Ireland, but there's also people who want to remain as part of the UK. But, you know, they not, weren't necessarily the people that voted for Brexit. So... Definitely, how, how yeah. We deal with that. It's it's just a quite contentious issue, really. Yeah, and I think an important thing to note about the the polls as well is, you know, as great as polls are for telling us, you know, mm-hmm. something we still <laughs> can't really, you know, yeah, look at them verbatim. Them, so. Exactly. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Newswire. I'm Eva O'Brien, and I'm joined today by Mary Foodie and Alison Condon. On today's show, we'll be talking to Peter Thorne, one of the leading authors of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We'll be reporting on RTE's Maurice McCabe and this and the This Is Not Consent rally held in Dublin today. Finally, we'll be interviewing Lauren Tinkler, a relay runner for DCU, and we'll be finishing with our panel discussion on the media coverage of climate change. But first, we have our hourly news bulletin.
Good evening, it's six o'clock. I'm Aoife O'Brien. Tens of thousands of people are living with severe mortgage distress and have been deemed abandoned and forgotten by the state, according to a new research project by NGO Community Action Network. The project said people in long-term mortgage arrears have not been given the required representation by state support systems and are overwhelmed with the situation they find themselves in. Cannes' lead researcher, Celia Forstel, said people raising family, families who cannot afford legal advice against vulture funds and banks may be at risk of homelessness. Hundreds of Dublin property owners may lose part of their front gardens to, accommodation bus and, to accommodate bus and cycle lanes under the controversial Bus Connect project. The National Transport Authority has issued letters to around 340 property owners in the proposed bus routes Clongriffin to City Centre, Swords to City Centre, Blanchardstown to City Centre and Lucan to City Centre. A public consultation process will be available from Wednesday afternoon and run into early next year. The Bus Connects project plans to upgrade 16 core bus routes and cycle lanes into the city but needs more space to do so. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and UK Prime Minister Theresa May held cabinet meetings today to discuss the agreed draft of a Brexit withdrawal agreement. It emerged last night that Britain had finally agreed a draft Brexit deal with the EU that would see a temporary UK-wide customs arrangement with specific rules for Northern Ireland. 333 beds will be made available this winter, the Dublin Region Homeless Executive announced. It aims to meet a rise in demand for its services during the cold weather. The measure was announced in partnership with a range of charities as the DRHE activates its cold weather strategy for 2018. And finally, Ireland's largest indoor water park is now taking bookings. Centre Parks deemed a subtropical paradise will launch next summer and provide 1,000 jobs in Longford. That's all for now. Sport and weather is next. The evening is, ro is rather windy and cloudy with temperatures varying around 14 degrees. That's all the news for now. Remember you can keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at DCU FM News. A defence barrister in a rape trial in Cork commented that the complainant in the case was wearing a thong with a lace front last week. She was 17 when the incident allegedly occurred. The jury of eight men and four women subsequently returned a unanimous not guilty verdict. Currently, it is legal for court victims to have their underwear passed around as evidence. A This Is Not Consent rally was held in Dublin today after the verdict. It started at the spire at 1pm where protesters made their way to the doll. It saw many protesters holding up signs with underwear on them saying, This is not consent. Solidarity TD Ruth Coppinger held up a song in the doll yesterday in protest at comments made in the rape trial Cork. Taoiseach, eight months ago, thousands of people took to the streets following the Belfast so-called rugby rape trial. We protested the treatment of a young woman involved at her clothing being passed around to the jury. But this week, another young woman has suffered a humiliation in a Cork rape trial. We can't comment on the verdict in the case, but we need to focus on the lessons. Why is nothing yet being done to stop the routine use of rape myths in trials? And how concerned is this government about the chilling effect this is having on victims coming forward? A barrister actually told a jury to, quote, look at the way she was dressed, that she was, quote, open to meeting someone, 
end quote, because she was, quote, wearing a thong with a lace front. A 17-year-old was put in the dock for her choice of underwear, and she was open to meeting someone, uh, was the implication. She was asking for it. Women in this country are getting a little bit weary at uh, the routine victim blaming going on in Irish courts and the failure of lawmakers in this house to do anything about it. Either the judiciary actually believe these rape myths, in which case they should be forced to do uh, education, not voluntary, or they're just using them to introduce sexist stereotypes that they know exist in society and among juries, I suspect the latter. Now, we've seen recently clothes, fake tan, even contraception being used to discredit women who have the bravery to go to court. But the last uh, Rape Crisis Network study estimated at best 10% of rapes ever get reported and only one in 40 rapes have an appropriate punishment. So how heroic do you have to be Tushok? How much levels of fortitude to pursue a rape trial in this country, particularly when research actually shows you've less chance of a conviction if you're young, if you knew the rapist, if you had any alcohol or drugs consumed, if you're working class up against uh, a well-paid lawyer. Now, we don't have data in this country because of the lack of funding of a savvy report. But the TUC in Britain, for example, found 63% of 18 to 24-year-olds experience sexual harassment at work, 69% of hospitality workers, and 67% of manual workers. And last week, Google workers effectively took strike action, even though they don't have a union against sexual harassment and inequality. Me Too now has to be taken into the workplace and into society. And women and men are seeing the necessity for themselves to take action because they can't wait for the pace of change being offered by this parliament. Protests have been called in five cities against uh, the conduct of this trial. Tomorrow at the Spire at one o'clock and in Cork at, in Patrick Street at one o'clock and in other cities as well. And it might seem embarrassing to show a pair of thongs here in this incongruous setting of the doll. But the reason I'm doing it, how do you think a rape victim or a woman feels at the incongruous setting of her underwear being shown in a court? And when is this doll going to take serious action on the issue of sexual violence? Thanks. I want to thank um, Deputy Coppinger for raising this important issue, which I know is one uh, of enormous concern. Uh, to the Irish public, uh, both men and both women. Uh, and let me say this, and let there be no doubt about it, um, nobody asks to, be, asks to be raped. And it's never the victim's fault. It doesn't matter what you wear, it doesn't matter where you went, who you went with, or what you took, whether it was drugs or alcohol. Nobody who's a victim of sexual violence, nobody who's a victim of rape, is ever to blame for the crime committed on them. Uh, and I believe that any defence uh, on those lines is absolutely reprehensible. And let me put that very clearly on the record of the stall. In terms of any individual court cases, uh, you know how the courts work. We live in a democracy. This is Parliament. Parliament is separate from the courts. There's a prosecution. There's a defence. The judge and the jury hear the trial, hear all the evidence, uh, come to a decision as to whether there's a conviction or not, and then the judge uh, rules on an appropriate sentence. Uh, and we can't interfere uh, in the way uh, individual court cases uh, are conducted. However, I do believe uh, we need to examine uh, this matter. 
uh, and a review has been established under the chairmanship of Tom O'Malley, who's a recognised expert in this area. And he's going to look at issues such as the evidence offered, protocols, and the practice and the procedure uh, to see if we can uh, make an improvement uh, as to how such trials are conducted. Recently published Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC report, maintains that there is a window of 12 years to keep the global temperature from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius on pre-industrial times. The UN body's research was an initiative that came after the 2015 Paris Agreement. Today on Newswire, we're speaking to one of the lead authors, Professor Peter Thorne, Director of the Irish Climate Analysis Research Group and Professor of Geography and Climate Change at Maynooth University, Ireland. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Peter. Hello. Okay, so the IPCC report has been quite an eye-opening report for many people due to its stark predictions on exceeding a 1.5 degree increase in global temperature. Can you outline for our listeners just some of the consequences if we as a global community fail to meet the challenge? So fundamentally, we're already experiencing climate changes. Many of the events that we in Ireland have experienced in the past two or three years are attributable in part to human influences. That will simply get worse. Um, one and a half or two degrees or even higher. The further we push the system, the greater the change, the greater the According to Environment and Science Editor of the Irish Times, Kevin O'Sullivan, we're currently headed for a three degree change in temperature. If this is the case, what is the likelihood of limiting the change to 1.5 degrees? And how can people work towards this in their everyday lives and work? So the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees did make clear that we're not yet absolutely committed to even one and a half degrees. But to keep it to one and a half or even two degrees is a wholesale change in lifestyles. It requires action internationally, nationally, regionally, locally, and individually. And it requires things that actions that reduce our use of fossil fuels and reduce our ultimate environmental footprint in all types of manners. Uh, practically speaking, things like the electrification of transport, uh, great use of public transport, uh, micro-generation of electricity, reduced waste, a whole bunch of uh, actions that are required from us. We're also aiming for a net zero CO2 emissions world by 2050, yet Ireland has actually failed to raise the carbon tax in its 2019 budget. How will this affect Ireland and where does this leave us in comparison with the environmental efforts of other European countries? So as the Taoiseach and others have all said, we're going to fail to meet our 2020 targets. Uh, quite miserably, in fact, we're going to be about 1% down on 2005 emissions. We should be a 20% reduction. That's almost certain to lead to fines from the European Commission. Um, but uh, more generally, uh, the failure to start to increase the carbon tax isn't necessarily the end of the world, as long as it's a, it's as long as it's a speed bump of doing so. The great concern is that the carbon tax becomes politically poisonous, and in the same way as Irish water charges did, for example, and completely unacceptable. We're putting a price on carbon very hard to see 
how we get to the carbon-free lifestyle that we need to be. Recently, the Minister for Climate Action and Environment, Richard Bruton, said, I want to make Ireland a leader in responding to climate change, not a follower, and that will require a significant step and change across the government. Over 30% of Ireland's CO2 emissions come from agriculture. As agriculture is such a huge industry for Ireland, how do you think the current government should go about lessening the CO2 output? So the, the minister's words are very encouraging. Um, and Ireland, yes, does have a significant challenge compared to most developed nations. Agriculture has a huge impact in Ireland. The Commissioner Drew Harris is seeking to reverse the decision to cover legal costs of former Commissioner Martin Callaghan in a case being taken against him by whistleblower Morris McCabe. The difficulties encountered by the country's most prominent whistleblower, Sergeant Morris McCabe, have been documented in a new two-part series released by RTE. The documentary details the events that saw Sergeant McCabe become isolated within Angarda Siakana for calling out malpractice in the force. McCabe, who retired from the force two weeks ago, was subject to a campaign of calumny as ruled by Judge Peter Charlton in the Disclosures Tribunal report. The person deemed to have been responsible for the campaign against Sergeant McCabe was former Gardaí Commissioner Martin Callaghan. At the weekend, it was revealed that in a civil action, McCabe is taking against the state 
Callanan is being represented by state's lawyers. Sergeant McCabe issued proceedings against Callanan, the Department of Justice, the Office of the Attorney General and the Office of the Garda Commissioner in early 2017 for the actions against him in Angarda Siakana. These include a false statement made by Callanan to TD John McGuinness that McCabe was under investigation for child abuse. Callanan was aware that this allegation was false at the time that he made it. McCabe's legal action also include the allegation that former Garth, Garth Press Officer David Taylor was instructed by Callanan to spread lies about McCabe. Yet it has now emerged that last July the acting Garda Commissioner Donald O'Coolanan agreed to provide legal representation for Callanan in the action being taken by McCabe. The Department of Justice confirmed the representation on O'Coolanan's recommendation. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris is seeking advice on whether he is bound by this decision and he may, depending on the advice, go to Minister for Justice Charlie Flanagan and ask him to scrap the arrangement. However, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said that as a former state employee who is being sued in the course of his work, it is the norm for the state to offer representation for him. Jim O'Callaghan, Fianna Fáil Justice Spokesman, spoke with Sean O'Rourke about the implications of the state funding, not only the state legal team, but the legal team of For the Garda Commissioner Callanan. Well, what the Taoiseach said is correct, but it doesn't accurately describe what the state is doing in the case of former Commissioner Callanan. As the Taoiseach said, it's normal for former state employees who are being sued because of work they did when employed by the state to have legal representation paid for by the state through the Chief State Solicitor's Office. However, what is not usual is what's happening in the case of former Commissioner Callanan, where you have a former state employee who's been given legal representation paid for by the state, and that legal representation is separate from other legal representation provided to other state defendants. And those people need to be aware about what's the nature of the case being brought by former Sergeant McCabe. He's suing former Commissioner Callanan and the state uh, because of, uh, I presume, issues to do with the campaign that was waged against him and which was disclosed in the Disclosures Tribunal. Now, it would be usual for the former commissioner to have that claim defended by the Chief State Solicitor's Office and for all the defendants to be represented by the one legal team. That's what happened up in the Disclosures Tribunal. But what's happening here is we're going to have two legal teams, both paid for by the state. One of them is going to be the state legal team and the other will be the legal team of former Commissioner Callan. And we need to find out from the state like, what's going to happen and what level of control does the state have over the nature of the defence that former Commissioner Callan is going to maintain. But the state has already apologised to Sergeant McCabe because of what Mr Justice Charlton said with the campaign of calumny uh, against him. But there's nothing to stop um, the former Commissioner Callan from putting in a defence denying that he was involved in any of these statements against uh, Sergeant McCabe and that would be totally inconsistent with the findings of the report and would be inconsistent with the apology that was made to Sergeant McCabe by the state and that's why the normal case should apply. If this was operating normally, uh, former Commissioner Callanan would be represented by the Chief State Solicitor's Office and we'd have one legal team representing all the defendants in the case and would give the state the opportunity to control the defence of that case. But what's unusual here is that we're going to have two legal teams, one of them from outside the state representing former Commissioner Callan. The state is going to pay for that, and we have no control over the defence that's going to be maintained by former Commissioner Callan in that defence. I think what the state should
should do is that the state should reach a settlement with Sergeant McCabe. Obviously, I don't know the issues about the case, but the state has a liability to him because at the time the statements were made, um, former Commissioner Callan was acting as Commissioner of Angarda Siakana. But I also think that the state should seek a contribution from former Commissioner Callan in respect of the state's exposure. And like, if the state needs to clarify whether it has done that at present, we need to know whether or not the state has served a notice of contribution and indemnity on former Commissioner Callum. So what did we get in return for agreeing to pay the legal team of former Commissioner Callum? Do we have any control over the defence that he puts in? If he's put in a defence stating that Sergeant McCabe is lying when he says there was a campaign of calumny against him, are we as the state going to be paying for that? So it's highly unusual where you'd give an indemnity to somebody to say we're going to pay your costs and the person funding the costs has no say as to the nature of the defence to be maintained. On Saturday, November 17th, the Irish Athletic Association are hosting this year's Road Relay Championships in Maynooth University. In this InterVarsities event, DCU Athletics Club will be competing alongside the other universities from all over Ireland. The club has been training for this event for the past few weeks and hope to beat their longtime rival, Limerick University. Athlete and second year communications student Lauren Tinkler has confessed that the two colleges have been neck and neck for the past few years now, with DCU winning the men's relay race last year and UL winning the women's. Following this race, DCU Athletics will also be competing in the indoor track and field championships in Athlone IT and a cross-country championships in Galway. DCU Athletics hope to have a good crowd with them on Saturday and welcome any students to come along and support. And lastly, it's time for our panel discussion. Climate change is definitely being covered more in the media recently and people are becoming more consciously aware about the environment. With this craze around single-use plastic lately, but is this enough? Is the media covering climate change enough? What do you think, Mary? I know that there is um, a, a general awareness um, now about the environment more so than there was in the last couple of years, but I still think that we should be doing a lot more. Um, the likes of the IPCC report um, and what it underlines, um, we just need to be doing more as a country um, and in how we live in general. So the likes of the government not bringing in a carbon tax for 2019 in the budget is a really big flaw considering a lot of the other countries in Europe are looking for more strict imposures on what we can be doing to help the environment. And then there's Ireland who aren't going to meet our goals for 2020 for the Paris agreements, which is going to end up in a lot of fines and general not good for the country. In terms of carbon tax, is it much higher in other countries? Um, it is higher and it has become higher um, each year as an incentive to cut down on fossil fuels. So in Ireland, the three areas that we struggle in are heat, agriculture and transport. So we need to have a huge reform there. Um, so just to give you an indicator, so the IPCC report, on a global level, we cannot or we are trying to not go past 1.5 degrees as a global um, increase by 20, sorry, in the next 12 years. Um, so if, we, if that actually does happen and we do go past it, we're gonna see the likes of coral reefs disappearing. So 70 to 90% of all warm water coral reefs will disappear if we reach like up on two degrees. So the likes of, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, like things that are essential for biodiversity and life in general are just going to be disappearing, which is very upsetting. 
Um, sea levels will rise from 70 to 80 degrees, from 70 to 80 centimeters, sorry, in this century, which will be catastrophic for the low-lying countries in the South Pacific and the Global South, as well as eventually all coastal regions. So obviously Ireland will be affected. Okay, so the food system, obviously, it's responsible for a huge amount of the greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. I think up to a quarter of all greenhouse gases are produced through our food system and 80% is associated with livestock production. However, that's Ireland's biggest export. I mean, we rely on it so heavily. Is there a way to find a balance? I mean, we could talk about it here for the next 20 hours, but I don't think it's... It, it is our job, it's our social responsibility to be aware of it and to be conscious of it, but we need the government to be doing more on our behalfs because the main thing that the environment is struggling with there's a quote from Naomi Klein's book, um, if I can just find it, it is basically that the laws of nature are in competition with the laws of our economy at the moment, so global capitalism, like one of these things needs to change and it's not the laws of nature because the laws of nature are not going to change. So, you know, it's kind of, we want to be globalised, we want to be exporting, we want growth, we want economic progress, but at what cost like when you look at the likely future and how it's going to affect us is it really worth it and are we thinking long term or are we just thinking of ourselves in the present moment so I just think the government needs to do more and obviously as people we can do as much as we can too and definitely like with the fines that are going to be imposed on us if we don't meet these targets I mean it's been proven especially in the fast fashion industry that if we adopt more sustainable methods it is actually more economically viable and the country can't, it can't afford these fines. It, it doesn't make sense that in the long term that we just can't seem to look at the bigger picture. So recently Richard Bruton has said, um, you know, he wants Ireland to be a, a leader with regards to climate change and not a follower, but we are lagging behind substantially at the moment. So it's kind of what, it's kind of like trying to figure out, you know, what's next and, you know, that's great. And like, as um, Peter Thorne mentioned, you know, a lot of hope in what he's saying but like hope only gets you so far it's like you know hopes and dreams and like what we can do for the environment and what we should do but like what are we actually doing we need to have actual policy change like radical change and it needs to be yes in Ireland but also like across the globe Um, so like recently in China um, there was the lift of a 25 year ban on the use of rhino uh, horns and tiger bones so like the global population right now in the wildlife of tigers is 3,900 not very much like extremely extremely like the general like um, animal populations have fallen by 60% since 1980 which is horrific when you actually think about it do you know that kind of way um, so there's a lot that needs to be done but at the same time as I'm using, Ar I'm using China as an example to still talk about Ireland and the economic issue because the reason China have done this and lifted this ban after 25 years is because it's going to put a lot of money into China. Their traditional, by the way, there's no proven um, records that these like traditional medicines have any actual impact on human beings positively at all. So, you know, it's traditional medicine and it's something they know is going to work for them. It doesn't necessarily have any positive effects, but they can make money from it. Exactly. Like, there's no proven scientific facts that say, you know, this actually works, but they're going to make a lot of money off it. It's a million dollar, billion dollar industry even. 
and so they have said that they're going to do this they have put um some restrictions on it and said that they're only going to take them um not from wildlife but from other um areas in captivity so there therefore they have a lot of tigers in captivity but w w with regards to the rhinoceros um issue they're go that is going to lead to such a huge increase in poaching um you know that's a huge issue and like this is just going to be an incentive for people to go and like poach rhinos and it's just it's the same thing you know it's like money over environment and money over biodiversity and it's just leading to the mass destruction of the environment and lack of animals even in ireland though like one thing that they seem to have been really committed to is by 2040 to have all petrol and diesel cars removed that we will all be using electric cars but there's very little incentive there for people to use electric cars mm -hmm. there's not the charging points they're quite expensive if it seems more viable for us to still be using petrol and diesel then there's no there's no real reason to change we're not looking at it in terms of 50 years down the road if we need to live day to day and need to get from a to b then a, an incentive has to be placed for us to change our ways of doing it and that that onus is on the government so there has been the green party did want to bring in free uh, public transport for any third level student so that's the likes of your bus your lewis your train whatever you name it if you have a student card or you are enrolled in a higher education um of any of any description any sort of higher education where you are going forward and you are trying to better yourself in some way that you will have free public transport just as a way to move us away from um you know cars and more towards public transport um just to obviously another way of like bringing down our fossil fuel um output but again this hasn't seen the light there hasn't been any movement on this there hasn't been any fees have only gone up i mean the leap yeah. card went up there last december and it's gone up again there about a month ago it's it's the reversal so it's the likes of that that would make a huge um impact especially for students obviously um it's already expensive and a lot of us do already use public transport but it might incentivize say um you know young working professionals who might be driving they might you know reconsider and say okay i'll actually use public transport and it will bring about benefits so I think a lot of it seems to have been put on individual kind of groups as well. Mm -hmm. Like DCU have the Sustainability uh, Society. Yep. Yeah, and they have um, there's like a bike connect system mm -hmm. that's run with some of the student villages mm -hmm. that have been dotted around the place. I know Dublin does have like cycle. They have bikes around the city that yeah. people can use, but it hasn't really been implemented elsewhere. And there's not enough of them. There's none of them here near DCU and it's been left to the college to provide them to students and that doesn't necessarily add up either. I think a huge issue too um, with regards to transport is when you look when you actually look at outside of Dublin you know what are the public transport systems like you know are, is there a choice for people to use um, public transport or do they actually need to have a car you know are there are the public transport um, routes there for them to get where they need to be going um so like the likes of like i'm from sligo and you know majority of young people drive everywhere because they have to because there's not enough public service um transport there and that really needs to be looked at too but sure we could be here talking about it for another 10 days you know 
especially because public transport seems to be constantly losing money. Mm-hmm. It's it's very hard to incentivize the government to keep going with it. Like Bus Aaron has lost so many routes and I mean there's there's no real kind of motive there to increase it unless we can figure out a way to make it sustainable for the government. You like there there is an understanding there that if they can't finance it then it's not going to work either. So I don't know. I think I think a lot of thought is going to have to be put into it. I think the thought, the thinking even needs to start um, sooner rather than later. Just with the likes of that report coming out, the likes of the WWF's report on um, um, the animal decline since 1980. It's just, you know, it's a lot of bad news essentially. And news that is like telling us, you know, we as a global community, as you know, an Irish community need to be doing more and we need more incentives from our government. We need more like actual willingness to show, okay, you know, we're doing something about this, we're willing to do this, not just I'm not demeaning or saying anything bad about what Richard Bruton said, but like it's all good saying things, but like action is required, It can't always you know? be what's best for them right now. Sometimes they just have mm-hmm. to look a bit further I guess and that's the mindset that kind of needs the most changing and the most to work on and it's I think the hardest thing really with regards um climate change is trying to tell people you know think about not just right now but like in the future okay so that's all we've time for thank you all for tuning in to Newswire today if you want to keep up to date with DCFM News, make sure to keep up with us on Twitter, on our Facebook and on our Instagram. We go live again next Tuesday at 6pm, so be sure to tune in then. Thanks for listening. I'm Aoife O'Brien. And I'm Marianne Foodie. Talk to you soon.